Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hi, Maeve. Hi. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you for joining me. Welcome to you and everyone to Social Distance, the Atlantic's podcast about the pandemic. I'm mm-hmm. James Hamblin. You can call me Jim. And with me today is Maeve Higgins, sitting in for Catherine Wells. But um, you can call me Jim. And I will also call you Jim. Just so everything's confusing. Um, It's been two weeks since we spoke, Maeve. How have you been? It has. Um, I've been fine. I've been putting into practice one of your pieces that you wrote, not about the coronavirus. It was before that. It was about press-ups or about (laughs) push-ups. Do you remember? Uh, Push-ups, which you call press-ups. Is that just you or is that regional? So I guess you do not call them press-ups, but it's the same thing. I would think of pressing as more something that would be done with like a, a finger, like pressing a button. Oh, that's how I do push-ups. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you don't do push-ups just on one finger? Dude, <laughs> that's the easiest way. <laughs> oh. Well, I guess that's what I'm working on. I don't really know. I remembered this piece that you wrote and it was like, don't worry about BMI, but do worry about this one thing. And then you said something <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm quoting you directly, by the way. Then you said something like, you know, if you want to check if you're going to, you know, live a long, healthy life, like maybe check if you can just do a press up, you know? And um, Yeah. Okay. I remember that. That was a story yeah. from 2019 or so mm-hmm. about a study that kind of said, you know, BMI, body weight isn't a great indicator of health. All these other mm-hmm. things aren't necessarily, but whether you can do one push up is actually a very good sign it's a meaningful sign about health in a way that some of these other numbers that we ascribe aren't what made you think of that because i tried to do one and i was like oh my this is important i know somewhere in my brain it was like your (laughs) like little careful voice being like this is this means something so i checked i I googled (laughs) i googled like hamblin the atlantic push-ups you want to see the pictures that came up? No, it was not. It was all <laughs> above board. It was no pictures of you doing them, but it was uh, this really interesting piece. So I've been working on that um, in the snow and the rain and everything. Cool. That's a nice attainable goal, right? Mm-hmm. Like so often when people make fitness goals, they're like, I'm going to work out an hour a day, every day, mm-hmm. indefinitely. And this is like a quantifiable thing that is actually doable. Yeah. And you can see results really fast. Like I said, I'm clapping. I'm doing them on one finger. I'm still sitting while I'm doing them, but they're getting more. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah. Moving into a horizontal position is like next level. Yeah. That's for the next pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) But um, 
Jim, I'm really glad to be here today because a lot of the things that we're going to talk about, I'm very curious about. I've been listening to the voicemails and poking around in your inbox. And um, do you want to hear one? There's a listener named Chris. He's actually in New York and he left a voicemail. Oh, right here in New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love listening to voicemails. Let's do that. Same. Hi, I have a question about uh, vaccine manufacturing. I was wondering if can you do something that we do for like generic drugs? Like, can we have it so Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson and Johnson would give their formula, just make it public and allow other countries or other vaccine makers to just copy their process and increase the supply? I know obviously there's like business reasons, you know, because they want to make money, but I think it would make sense for, you know, maybe the Gates Foundation or a country to just pay. Maybe probably Johnson Johnson, like $1 billion, and just say, like, you know, we're just going to make this available to everybody to manufacture so the whole world can have vaccines as quickly as possible. All right. Thank you. So what do you think? Like, oh, there is yeah. this vaccine shortage. That seems like a cool solution. That does sound like a cool idea. Mm-hmm. And... It's more complicated than that might seem, but I'm also not sure it needs to be more complicated. I saw your tweet about it as well. You said the shortage doesn't need to exist. You know, Pfizer, Moderna, they could share the design with dozens of other pharma companies who stand ready to produce their vaccines and end the pandemic. And I was like, I'm going to give that one a retweet. But I guess- thank you. You and like 40 million other people. Well, <laughs> uh, I yeah. want to address that specifically sure, uh, because it, it, it became a source of much discussion and I uh-huh. didn't word it exactly as I would have if I could go back. It's a little for the exact same reason that it's more complicated mm. than that. And I think I implied that it like, or at least I know the way people reacted to it was that I... Like they thought that I was saying they could snap their fingers and this would happen and it would be super mm. swift and easy. And I, I didn't mean that. Yeah. It's like when you say something like, like we actually have enough money in the world for everyone to have food and shelter. Yeah. Uh, we have the wealth and we have the capacity to do that. And then you get a bunch of people that are like, well, but there are all these laws that, that where rich people don't have to pay taxes. So we actually don't. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you're also right. <laughs> but yeah. I didn't mean it in the sense of like, this is going to be easy and happen tomorrow. But I do think it's sort of the solution that's starting to happen and should have happened already. Mm. I think Uh, you should. I mean, just as a communicator myself, you don't use enough emojis in your tweets about (laughs) deadly viruses. So maybe you could do like a hmm face, you know, with a big with a monocle on, making a little, <laughs> like, there's more to this. <laughs> right. I I feel like that should be appended to every tweet. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> like, if you ever read, read a tweet mm-hmm. and feel compelled mm-hmm. to be like, well, it's actually not the entire story. It's a tweet. It's so short. Like, everyone knows that, hopefully you should know that's not the entire story. Anyway, um, it's a lot more complicated than any single tweet. Um, These are complicated vaccines to make and distribute. That doesn't mean it has to be so complicated and that we shouldn't make this more open technology. In any case, I'd like to talk 
to an expert on this about how that might happen and why it might not. So we're going to call Greg Gonzalez. He's been on the show before. He's an epidemiology professor at Yale School of Public Health, where I'm also a lecturer, uh, full disclosure, Mm -hmm. and uh, co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership. Yeah, I heard him on the show back in May with you and Catherine, and it was fascinating the way he spoke about the history of the AIDS pandemic. Yeah, he, after a lot of advocacy work, mm-hmm. got into academia, got his PhD, became a professor, and um, started studying um, you know, global infectious disease eradication. So it, he'll be very helpful in terms of talking to us about the logistics of why things aren't happening and what is technically possible. For sure. And we should explain to the listeners that we were waiting for his availability. He's obviously so busy, but that's why we're a day late. It's it's nothing to do with Jim's um, cosmetic surgery. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, I, I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to than Greg about this. And he's been very busy, but mm-hmm. he's here now. So thank you for waiting on the episode. Yes. So let's give him a call. Hey, I'm here. Hey, Greg. Hi, how are you? Fine, fine. Maeve is sitting in for Catherine today. Hi, Maeve. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, mm-hmm. anytime. Greg, we, we got a, a listener question asking, basically, if we could just uh, have governments produce generic versions of the vaccines that are out there. And why isn't that already happening more widely? And was wondering if maybe we could start with that idea and then sort of work backwards to what you've written about specifically. Yeah. Sure. So um, as you may know, vaccines are complex biological molecules. You know, in the case of the mRNA vaccines, nucleic acid wrapped in these lipid nanoparticles. Most therapies, drugs, we put into our bodies in pill form or, or simple molecules, right? They're easy to produce. It's like you have the recipe, you can make the recipe in another factory. And in the context of the AIDS epidemic, you know, many companies around the world produced generic versions of patented branded antiretrovirals, which made it possible to put millions and millions of people on AIDS drugs over the past 20 years. Um, the problem with vaccines is they are complex amalgamations of different kinds of, of chemical entities, and you can't just follow a recipe. If I started a company and I wanted to take Moderna's mRNA vaccine and produce it, I probably wouldn't know exactly how to produce that exact formula and construct that vaccine in the same way, and I'd have to do new clinical trials. It's not a simple question of sort of making a generic vaccine. That being said, many people, including um, my colleagues, had an op-ed a few weeks ago calling for a president's emergency plan for vaccine access and relief. And they made a case that we should have public production of vaccines. So a company like Moderna or Pfizer would be asked by the government uh, in no uncertain terms, um, (laughs) help us build a a government factory to make your vaccine or help us retrofit another factory to do so. Um, 
not so crazy to think about because Lanza is making Moderna's vaccine as a contracted manufacturing plant. So it's not impossible to do. It requires the ability to exactly reproduce what Moderna does for its vaccine in a set of other plants. So public production, not just to expand access in the United States and deal with these vaccine limitations, but to do it for the rest of the world under the President's Emergency Plan for Vaccine Access and Relief modeled on PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief that President Bush announced in the early 2000s. I think what people are also thinking about is not just public production in the United States, but why not tech transfer from companies in the global north to places that have domestic pharmaceutical manufacturing capability like South Africa, Brazil, Thailand, and others that could profit from greater worldwide supply of these vaccines. Can you clarify just one thing for me? So you mentioned a smaller pharmaceutical company is doing contract work with Moderna. I know other smaller companies are doing the same. So how is it possible that they're able to quickly become able to produce these vaccines, but companies that aren't under contract from Moderna aren't? So at some point in development process of Moderna's vaccine, they said, we're going to need to scale up. So they went to Lanza and said, we're going to come in and show you exactly what you have to do. This is the kind of machinery, the kind of vats, the kind of you know, lipid particle processing, your, your, your RNA uh, synthesizing machines, et cetera. And so they gave them very explicit line-by-line instructions on how to do it. The reason that you and I couldn't, as theoretical pharmaceutical company owners, is just do it on our own is because we don't know those details. What if they made a like YouTube video series? <laughs> if they did an actual formal tech transfer agreement with yeah, that company, yeah. that would be fine. I mean, that's what we're talking about in public production is that the government could say, you know mm-hmm. what, it's not that expensive in, in, in the long run to build up mRNA vaccine capacity. We're not going to do it today, but in six months, to eight months to a year, just as Moderna had to do in, in the, over the course of 2020, we can build up capacity to do this. Moderna, Pfizer, we're going to sit you down and, um, well, actually, Moderna, you took billions of dollars from us. We're not even going to sit you down. You're going to do this. Um, and you're going to help our new contractors around the country and up in Canada and Mexico uh, set up production facilities so we can pump out more of your mRNA vaccines. Um, right. That's, that's totally possible. Is the reluctance there, like, I mean, the stakes are so high. There's such a shortage in the US. And then you mentioned worldwide, right, in the global south. So, you know, why is there a reluctance to kind of hurry that along, do you think? So cash is king. I mean, I don't want to be crude, mm-hmm. but... Moderna is pretty clear that you pay to play, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we bought up a whole bunch of the vaccine supply in the global north because we could, you know, we were where you're going to get the best bang for your R&D buck. Um, yeah. You know, since the early AIDS epidemic, well, actually since the 2000s, when we were having these discussions about generic medicines, you know, many foundations like the Gates Foundation and others said, you know, if you're going to develop vaccines, drugs, diagnostics for the globe, you need to have some sort of global access policy. And there was something put into place in many uh, foundation agreements and others that said, if you take our money, you have to agree to uh, affordable pricing and access to the rest of the world, largely for drugs. But CEPI also initially had done this for vaccine development. uh, And in 2019, they reneged on it. Right before the pandemic, they took out this, this affordable pricing global access clause out of their licensing agreements, leading MSF, Doctors Without Borders, to go after them uh, in no uncertain terms to say that they were rolling the clock backwards in terms of equitable access to biomedical technologies right before COVID hit. So, you know, the point is, is that 
corporations don't want to give away things for free. You know, in the case of Moderna, taxpayers in the U.S. invested billions in development of that immunogen, right? We're not asking for something for free. We already paid for it. Um, And we don't need necessarily to pay for it two times around. Countries around the world, rich countries are paying, what, $60, $70 per dose to Moderna to supply their own domestic needs. Mm -hmm. What we need to do and what we've said across the past 20 years is that, yes, make your buck back in the global north, but you need to make it free and accessible uh, across the rest of the world. Um, And, you know, basically the Trump administration had no they had no plan for distribution and scale up anyway, mm. but surely didn't think anything about the rest of the world and the rest of the world's needs. Sadly, you know, this is the case with many of the other sort of um, countries around the world as well. Nobody's sort of planned for global distribution and, and scale up. COVAX is saying, maybe we're going to hit 20%, 25 27% of coverage in 92 low-income countries by the end of this year. But others are going to have to wait until 2022, 2023 to get access to these. So like one in five people in 92 low-income countries. Yeah. And I think when you figure out all the sort of low-income countries, it's like 3% of the world's poor get access to these vaccines. You know? 3%. Yeah. 3%. Wow. I mean, it's sort of grotesque, like from an ethical perspective, it's, it's criminal. But, you know, as we're talking about all these new variants. It's also really dumb. It's really dumb. I mean, we're just basically, if you're interested in pushing a virus to evolve to evade your vaccines, the best way to do it is low level pressure from incomplete partial vaccination of your population over a long period of time. Oh my so, God. And we already know that some of the you know variants have had some luck and some have been about expanded um, transmissibility, like the, the B117 variant that was found in the UK. There's some sense that, the, that the, the, this new variant, which was first described in the context of South Africa, might be... Um, less susceptible to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Right. You know, think of three years of low-level vaccination around the world and the sort of plethora of variants that's going to come spewing out of, uh, across the globe, potentially being resistant to the current uh, Moderna uh, vaccine, the current Pfizer vaccine, the current Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We're going to be chasing variants around the globe for the foreseeable future um, and basically have made a, a, a death pact for endemic spread of this virus. It's never going to go away, right? We're now in a, in a path where we're going to have these cycles of coronavirus outbreaks as there are gaps in vaccination across the U.S. and across the world, um, and as new variants emerge that might be less susceptible to vaccines that we put out into the field. Right. I, did, I, I knew it was wrong, <laughs> what was happening, but I didn't realize it was also kind of creating these excellent conditions. So the virus has, like, as you put it, like more luck too, right? I mean, we, we could be lucky. Maybe mm-hmm. like th- these variants don't emerge that escape the ability to be neutralized by the antibodies raised by these vaccines. But, you know, mm-hmm. we have millions of people infected, hundreds of millions of people infected. This virus is not a, a, as great a sort of mutation generator as HIV because it has a proofreading enzyme. But the sheer number of infections that are happening are a recipe for viral variation emerging over the course of the next few months and years. Um, and as we put things in its way that are actually not good enough to stop it in its tracks, it starts to push it down an evolutionary pathway to resist these uh, half measures that we throw at it. Yeah. So the half measures can ultimately be be dangerous for the world, it, 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 even if you know the wealthy countries you know didn't have a sense of morality or obligation to just basic equity issues. There was, uh, you know, it's just not in their own personal interest. It's dangerous to their own citizens to not think about this problem yeah. in the right and, way. Yeah. And we said this in the context of the AIDS epidemic, you know, it's like 
unless you deal with HIV, it's always going to be haunting the planet. You know, people like, oh, you know what, we have antiviral therapy in the U.S., we can manage the disease, sorry. Um, now we have a disease where it really doesn't care where you live. It doesn't need sex or drugs to transmit itself. It just sort of, you know, close personal contact without the requisite preventive measures in place. So the, the self-preservation instinct right now should be really strong with us about getting global vaccination coverage quickly, broadly across the globe. But I don't think people are thinking straight. I think they're like so sort of looking inward about their national situations that they really don't understand that like we're all at risk until none of us are, are basically at risk. Right. Yeah. The expression haunting the planet is um, is chilling me here. It's a really, it's a really effective way of explaining, like, I guess what the AIDS pandemic is still doing. And I wonder if you could tell us about like, are some countries doing better or worse? Is anybody doing a good job? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Everybody's not doing great right now. You know, we're under mm -hmm. 10% vaccination in the US. It's not like Europe is doing much better than that. You know, maybe by the second half of this year into the early um, 2022, um, we'll have widely immunized most places in Europe, maybe into the half of 22, larger chunks of the world like Russia, Canada, China, India. So, you know, we're not on a target to sort of widespread vaccination even here until, you know, probably later this year. Everybody else is going to be way behind. And then, as I said, some people are going to be waiting for two to three years to get vaccines, you know, and who knows what happens is viral variants emerge and people start to scramble to develop vaccines to their own countries targeting the new variants and forget about the needs of other countries once again. Right. Oh, so we, we could be like, sorry, we need our second round of yeah. Yeah. updates before you even get one. Yeah. Sorry, we screwed it up the first time and now we're going to screw it up again. Yeah. <laughs> I like that nice apologetic tone that you took there <laughs> yeah. in your... <laughs> In that little role play where you were America saying sorry to the rest of the world. <laughs> um, except we probably wouldn't say sorry. Uh, Greg, <laughs> you've studied the AIDS pandemic for a long time. And I think from a U.S. perspective, that's often thought about and talked about as a phenomenon of the 80s and early 90s. But the global deaths peaked in 2004. This seems like we might be on a similarly narrow-minded trajectory how do we risk repeating that problem of you know improperly conceptualizing the scope of what we're dealing with here well there's a couple of things one is you know global deaths may have peaked in 2004 but in the american south um if you're a black gay man 50 percent chance that in your lifetime you're going to be hiv positive um in the context of u.s healthcare, you know it's not clear that you're going to get access to the drugs that keep me alive uh, on a day-to-day -day basis and there's still not uh widespread full coverage of antiretrovirals in, in the global south. So deaths may have peaked, um, but, you know, we still have this uh, fulminant epidemic in the U.S., uh, mm -hmm. except it's, it's it, you know, the New York Times Magazine every 10 years writes an article about the hidden epidemic in the United States, but mm -hmm. it's, it's there for anybody who wants to see it. And so, you know, we basically have no chance of real containment and eradication of HIV in my lifetime. The sad thing about SARS-CoV-2 is that because it's airborne, because it's communicable in a much more general way than, than a sexually transmitted or bloodborne transmitted disease like HIV, is that the stakes are so much higher. Um, and so we've talked about sort of what happens with incomplete vaccination and the emergence of variants. But, you know, everybody wants to go back to normal. And mm. having waves of coronavirus infections 
coming across the planet that we have to tackle with new vaccines every every few years because a variant emerges, or even just because you know um, there's pockets of, of vaccination that allow the virus to sort of pop out like we see for sort of childhood disease in different places around the U.S. We're just going to sort of be living in a new normal. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it could reshape our lives very much like sort of big catastrophic moments in in modern history have done to to generations before us. You know, we weren't prepared for it. We're, we're not rising to the challenge in a way that's going to make quite a bit of difference. The sad thing, and as you both know, is that, you know, this isn't going to be our last time at the rodeo, right? Like pandemics, you know, will come at us, AIDS, Ebola, H1N1, swine flu, this now, what's going to be next? Um, if we had a chance to scale it up, you know, worldwide vaccine production and readiness, um, if you can't do it in the midst of a global pandemic, when does it ever get real for anybody, Right. Right. Um, so that's the, that's the thing that scares me the most is that as a species, we are, you know, we're playing with fire. So, well, if we could bring it back to kind of just where we started, it sounds like we're in a moment right now where we could either accept this new normal where there are just indefinitely globally large numbers of people who are sickened and dying from SARS-CoV-2 and from future variants of that. Or we could, you know, aggressively try to stamp this out by ramping up vaccination in creative ways, like, you know, making these a public good. Um, We started here talking also about a tweet that I had that was not well worded, but that got a lot of criticism for the idea that a lot of places around the world could produce these vaccines if we were to think out of the box in sort of the ways you're describing too. Um, And... I got a lot of pushback, just like, no, it's not possible. You know, only Pfizer and Moderna can basically make these vaccines. (laughs) I guess you've done advocacy work. You know about effective approaches to like helping people to not accept the status quo. What can we do in this moment to avoid going down that route of just, this is the best we can do. This is the normal, Mm -hmm. the way vaccines are made and uh, we'll do our best. So could we tomorrow make double the amount of Moderna vaccine with another contractor or other company to do it? No. Sure. But it took a year for the company to scale up their production capability. And we know that's true because there was no SARS-CoV-2 a year ago in our, in our, in our imagination or the idea that there was going to be any vaccine development. So if there was political will, um, the U.S. and other rich countries could underwrite a global production plan you know, for mRNA vaccines right? Um, you know, maybe there's other vaccine platforms that we can talk about too, but these are the two approved ones. Um, and we could make a plan, figure out who's going to pay for it, and then tell Moderna, tell Pfizer, tell Johnson & Johnson, we're going to do this as a global community. Um, if NIH wants to exercise its patent rights and tell Moderna you're going to do it, use it or lose it, we can do that too. They're going to have to provide tech transfer, we can remunerate them for whatever they want, and we we get that up and running. And so, in six months to a year, there's more capacity to get these highly effective vaccines out there. Yeah, I think the other piece of this is global genomic surveillance. We barely know what's going on in the U.S. in terms of these variants, um, and we're going to need to have a sense of like, what's the map of variant emergence across the globe, and what is the impact of them on vaccine susceptibility? We need like an international global research platform tracking down variants looking at the ways in which it might evade immunity now and in the future and use that to help develop plans for different kinds of vaccine distribution across the world, different kinds of vaccine development over time. And so it's totally possible to do. People are saying, yeah, we can't flip a switch, 
and change yeah. everything. And Derek Lowe, who writes for Science Magazine, has said this in a column. You know, we can't do this right away. The point is, we can do it. We can't do it. <laughs> yes, we can't do it tomorrow. That's, I didn't mean to imply we could do it tomorrow. <laughs> I, I I realize it kind of read that way, but that seems to be like just because we can't do it tomorrow doesn't mean it's not doable. And but they wanted to shut you up. They wanted to shut you up. They wanted to tell you it was impossible and that it you know it's not like a generic drug. No, we can't do it. We can't do the capacity. You know, the point is is like there's a lot of people saying you know um, or or throwing up obstacles in the way to do it. When I just think it's making a. a, a a large global business plan about how we're going to do this. Are you saying, you know, this vaccine manufacturing step, it's about the pandemic either becoming permanent or not becoming permanent? Well, being permanent, not being permanent, or being worse or worsest or most worse. You know, the point is like, if we accept the status quo, um, it's going to be gruesome for the planet. Horrifying, yeah. Horrifying, both from the epidemiological and the sort of humanitarian perspective. And so, you know, President Biden is a far better um, steward of our, our our pandemic future, but I don't think he's thinking globally right now. I don't think any of the European leaders are thinking this way. And then when they look back, they mm. think, oh, with the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria, we all give like a billion dollars here and there. And, you know, this is a much larger global health lift than anything we've done before. It's not impossible, mm-hmm. but people have to basically say, you know what, vaccine coverage broadly and as quickly as possible is an international goal. It's not based on on charity, slightly a little bit, but for mostly it's self-preservation um, because we're going to be asked yeah. to do this again with another pandemic. We're going to be asked to do this as global climate change comes creeping up on us. Right. At some point, we're going to have to make a collective decision to act together for our, our collective self-interest. But right now, it's every man and woman for himself, every pharmaceutical company for themselves. So we're not on the right path yet, um, even though things are looking looking up in the United States in terms of the national leadership. But the global situation is, is pretty catastrophic. Yeah. While we have you just... For the last few minutes, I read your piece in The Atlantic about your personal experience with the vaccine, and I found it so fascinating. Could you talk us through how you grappled with your own decision about getting the vaccine now? Because you were offered the vaccine before your elderly mother. Yeah, I was offered before my elderly mother. But, you know, if you you know if you look at my Facebook feed or other people's Facebook feed, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. showing these, these vaccination cards, you know, and you're going, wait, you're a 30-something medical student, or you... Mm-hmm. you're seeing these sort of bizarre um, trajectories of who's getting vaccinated in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and when you look at the data, it's 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 depressing because um, the zip codes in which there's high uh, rates of high death rates um, are also the same place that there are low vaccination rates. This In the same way that we don't have a global sort of centralized strategy for equitable distribution, we don't even have one in the U.S. We're just giving them to states and states are doing it individually it's chaos a little bit of chaos yeah and your personal sense of fairness your choice was you were going to wait and get the vaccine we'll see a little later right that there's conflicting advice there from ethicists Mm -hmm. about (laughs) whether you need to take it or you know if it's the system's fault and you you are just participating in a bad system or what Anyway, future episodes. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for all your insight, as always. And I hope we'll talk to you later on down the road and things look better. Thanks, James and me. Thanks for everything. All right, cheers. Bye. Bye. 
Um, Maeve, do you remember when we spoke with Ruth Faden from Hopkins? I was just thinking about her. Yeah. I, I spoke to her since then, and she kind of addressed this question of, say, if you're in a position to get vaccinated and you know that there are people in other states, as there certainly are in other countries, who are, mm-hmm. you know, more in need of this vaccine than you are. You know, there are healthcare workers in mm-hmm. Africa who are doctors and nurses who are, are not vaccinated. And, you, you know, they're going to be young, mm-hmm. healthy adults in the U.S. who are going to get vaccinated before them, it seems. Right. Um, Did she come down on hot people need to be saved? No, or I mean, I think she didn't feel that even warranted uh, her time. Um, <laughs> but she said, you know, the first and foremost guiding principle is that we can't let any of these go to waste. And yes, that it's not necessarily wrong to take it if you are within a system that is telling you it's your turn to take it. Because if you refuse it, it doesn't mean it's going to be flown to Africa. So, you know, I think as in the coming months, you know, most Americans are going to have an opportunity to have this. And most of the world is yeah. not going to be vaccinated. And yet at an individual level, the responsible thing to do is sort of, you know, work for a more equitable world. But for now, take your shot. Yeah, I really appreciate like, you know, that Greg wrote about that and just talked it through and helps helps me think things like that through. Yeah. And I really enjoyed our conversation with her as well, because um, I mean, I'm sure you've seen like the doctor who gave them out got fired, you know, like there's all this stuff going on. And yeah, like we're policing the little fires instead of building a better system. Right. Meanwhile, did you hear when he said HIV continues to haunt the planet? I was like, oh, my God, here comes another (laughs) frightening, you know, undead virus that's just going to keep coming back. Yeah. Very poetic. Very spooky. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, We just take these things for granted once they've been around long enough that we just start to think, oh, it's an unsolvable problem. Um, he's just so straight up with what's happening. But there was one point and um, Greg said, you know, as you both know, we're in it for the long haul. I was like, wait a second. Yeah. How long? (laughs) I know. I I have to keep relearning that. Like, because my poor brain is like, you know, it's nearly over. But yeah. Yeah. That's like this mistake we keep repeating, right? Like at the beginning, people yeah. were like, oh, how long is it going to be? Two weeks? A month? And then, <laughs> and uh, wait a minute, it might go on until summertime? Wait a minute, it might be with us all year? And then now, like, we just keep insisting that there's some end. And there could be, if we wanted to, do this global vaccination strategy. Yeah, that sounds so cool. And like, because I don't want to be, you know, those the kind of jolly British generals like before World War One, <laughs> and they were like, don't worry boys, I, you'll be home by Christmas. I, and all the boys went marching off <laughs> for like four years. <laughs> is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a big, messy, long-winded war because nobody got it together to just clean it up. Yeah. So, I guess that's how most wars I wasn't start, there. isn't it? They're, nobody's like, well, we're going to be doing this for the next three decades. Oh, certainly not. Especially not World War One. Like that was just basically a series of mishaps and a series of, you know, I want to go over there now. 
And <laughs> you go first, though. Whoops. Sorry. <laughs> that was real mess. But again, it was self-interest that led to, you know, the decimation of whole populations instead of just being like, actually, let's think about the greater good. Oh, Jim, don't make me teach you all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, next week we will uh, talk about World War One. Did it need to happen? Did we learn anything from it? Um, Our guest, Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, how are you doing otherwise? Um, just got my third dose of the Pfizer vaccine, so I'm feeling Shut ultra up. strong. <laughs> <laughs> no, you I, go, I didn't, you, just to be totally clear. I've had no doses of anything. <laughs> you hang around with ethicists and they <laughs> can't decide whether they want theirs or not. And then you get theirs too. Yeah. <laughs> For journalism. Um, I, I have a lot of hope. If we can end this on a hopeful note, Maeve, you know, I mean, for as much as we're talking about careful, deliberate distribution and ways around shortages, it does seem like in the US and the UK, very soon, everyone who wants to have a vaccine will have one. And we need to think more globally about how uh, how to make that a, a bigger picture. But for in our worlds, at least, um, you know, soon all these questions of distribution by county or uh, zip code should hopefully be behind us. Um, but that doesn't mean it'll be over. Mm hmm. Maeve, do you want to do the credits since I know you like doing the credits? Just don't throw me, okay? But I do want you to hum underneath me while I'm doing them. Okay. Social Distance is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez. Write to us, please, at socialdistance@theatlantic.com or leave us a voicemail at 202-642-6487. That is Jim's phone number. Oh, no, that's if not. If you like this show and want voicemail. access to... <laughs> box where you can feel free to leave a voicemail oh i'm sorry this is jim's number 917 <laughs> just kidding i'm not allowed to have it okay if you like this show and want access to all of the atlantic's journalism the best way to do that is by subscribing to the atlantic.com slash support us and a reminder about that survey i mentioned at the top we love making this show and it helps us to know who we're making it for. So if you could go to theatlantic.com slash social distance survey and answer a few quick questions, that would help us improve and make everything better for you. <laughs> you said love making. <laughs> you I, said, I, we love making this show. I think you're not getting show. enough sleep, Maeve. Uh, <laughs> thank you for talking today. I hope to talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Joe. Okay, <laughs> bye. Bye, Jim. Thank you. <laughs> I actually genuinely got no sleep last night. That's so funny that you picked up on that. Use that, Kevin. I have. Gr I'm Don't a great that. doctor. <laughs>